0: In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. Twenty years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today.
1: I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia?
0: Please explain. Oh, mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy.
1: Not now. Not ever. I mean, (laughs) these comments are completely inappropriate.
0: I'm sure she's right.
1: But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic.
0: You're a classic space invader.
1: Disgusting, mud sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate.
0: Taste of democracy. Very good. (laughs) G'day there, I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations. This is Democracy Sausage Extra, and I'm delighted to say that I'm speaking to you today from paradise, one version of it anyway, because I'm in northern New South Wales, in literal rainforest country. That's right, I've gone as far north as one can go without breaking some pretty dubious laws imposed by the Queensland government in this strange COVID-fragmented country of ours and I'm speaking today with someone who knows this region very well indeed. He's a former long-standing New South Wales Greens member of the State Upper House, Ian Cohen. Ian, welcome to Democracy Sausage Extra.
1: Thanks, Mark. Glad to be here.
0: Now, before we discuss the Greens, the state of politics, the state of activism, and I guess a little of your own story, I wonder if you wouldn't mind sketching a bit about the country that that we're sitting in right now, where you now live here in northern New South Wales. Just tell us a bit about this this particular place that we're in
1: well i i looked long and hard and kept coming back to the beauty of uh, broken head and the ruggedness of the area in great part because it's a, it's a hilly rise uh, surrounded by plains and flat beaches which they sand mined in the past so there's been quite an alteration to the to the uh, uh, the landforms on the beaches and their ability to withstand all weather conditions but this particular area is very ancient rocky outcrops which are a, a, a line between different uh, geological systems and it's much older than uh, the Mount warning caldera uh, system and so uh, it's Got quite a few features, not only geologically coastal, uh, also um, species-wise, and it's a tiny patch that didn't get broken down and developed and urbanised because it was so rocky and hilly. So and and so this forest has been able to survive through some pretty intense farming practices of 50 to 150 years ago, and uh, and so it's got quite a history. It's got a very Strong Aboriginal history and, um, and it's a, a very beautiful area and a place where we can actually just let the forest grow and let the ecology come back without any great deal of assistance. So, uh, so that's where I chose to live. Being a greenie, I wanted to live in the forest and, uh, and again, being a greenie, I wanted to save a bit of forest as part of my living experience. And, uh, it, uh, is, it's rugged, sometimes inconvenient, sometimes a bit of a, um, a, a challenge, but at the same time we're surrounded by coastal development and I'd certainly rather be surrounded by trees.
0: Yeah, so Broken Head is a little bit south of Byron Bay, which of course everybody in, in Australia knows about. It's essentially the easternmost point of the of mainland Australia. Um that Byron Bay, that is, uh, and people, of course, are well aware. I think who've have, have watched the news at all of erosion. You mentioned erosion being a big issue in in um, Byron Bay, for example, uh, this part of the coast because of a number of things. But of course, you know, general, broader environmental um, forces as well, rising sea levels, greater turbulence, and the like. <coughs> um, this part of the coast, as you say, are far less affected by that. The beaches are probably in a, in a more natural state as a result.
1: Yeah, they're protected by their natural landform, and uh, that's, that's really reassuring. And a lot of the areas like the Belongel and down at Lennox Head, uh, the beaches are a retreat zone, and so there's always that issue, and it's all the way along the coast. There are Sections that are protected and sections that are, uh, retreat zones. And so when we had, um, earlier councils, they worked with the scientific community talking and, and, and quite strongly proving, although coastal geomorphology is a bit of a mystery to everybody, even the experts. You can't really totally understand the incredible complexities of wave patterns and impacts. Uh, but, uh, we work with scientists. Um, one leading scientist, uh, Bruce Tom, who uh, is uh, – we're, we're adamant that we need – councils need to adopt a retreat strategy. It's the best way to do it and the natural coastline g- comes and goes over ages. Well, that clashes directly with the real estate industry and and the love of Australians to have a, a beachfront dwelling. Yeah, and an so ocean, that yeah. is a, an incredible uh, cultural cl- clash and it's been very difficult. In a lot of ways, we look like losing that under this current state government and also local governments who, um, you know, can't withstand the threat of legal action and the power of very wealthy landowners on the coast. Now, not everyone's wealthy but a lot are mm. and they can wield their might and there's been some developments and buildings on the retreat zone areas that have been uh, uh, pretty intrusive and pretty bold and uh, and people get away with it. And so that's been a major issue in the area and uh, it changes the nature of the coastline and also brings into question uh, the whole question of um, um, private ownership, control of beaches. Hmm. You put rock walls in, you lose your public beach. Um that mean and that 's something again a different thing, very sacred to the australian population we don't have privatized beaches like they do all up and down the coast in america that's right so we have we have essentially continuous right away along the
0: the, the, the coastline uh, save for uh, geographic features which make it impassable, like like you know points and yeah, lands and, and rocky
1: outcrops yeah. and such like and uh, and this um general push by people who are understandably wanting to maintain their properties, um, then becomes a situation. I've seen evidence of it where. You lose the beach. You put a rock wall down, and you lose the beach. And once you've lost the beach, and why does that happen? Because the waves come up to to that rock wall, which is there to protect the cavities, land. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and and, yeah. and it, and it scours it out up, underneath, yeah. and you lose the natural sort of build up and attrition see, right. of the beach. And so, therefore, uh, the public loses what's arguably the most powerful and valuable asset in a place like Byron Bay, which is the ability to Walk along magnificent beaches mm. that are in a relatively natural order, and to the untrained eye, it's pretty perfect. Uh, but yeah. it's it's a struggle all round. I think it's really telling
0: when you walk past some of the um, real estate agent shops in in Byron Bay, and they they often, and I'm, I'm wondering whether this is actually wise, but they often use you know aerial shots like drone shots, particularly to show you uh, where a particular house is at Bellongil, for example, and yeah. you can see that that tidal. River at the back that's flowing out, and you can see the beach at the front, and you realise it's actually a relatively thin spit of oh, land yeah. with all and, those houses. And that like.
1: area there is just as likely to be inundated from behind as it is to be inundated from the front. It's a bit like the guns of Singapore, you know. <laughs> you're, you're focusing the wrong way. And uh, and, and so... Uh, I wonder about insurance there as well. I mean, that must be pretty well, iffy. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, I think all these problems, whether it be fire, floods, cyclones, you know, incremental rises in ocean level and incremental rises in, in, in temperature uh, lend themselves towards greater summertime cyclonic storm activity and therefore we've got an exacerbation of uh all the problems that have been existing And you know every 20 30 years there was 1954 We lost a whole village called Burning Palms To the north of Brunswick Heads They had to evacuate It is no more there is no real evidence Of it uh, in 74 uh, I was travelling up this coast And it was monumental it was a big Again um, east coast low Coming up in about July And, uh, and it Wiped out um, significant Areas of the coast and had water are running like a river down Johnson Street in Byron Bay. So uh once the ocean is unleashed in its fury, mm. <laughs> it is you know, it, it certainly puts us in our place, I think, and people uh continue to build in erosion zones and coastal areas. Uh really it's been well known. That's our argument, I suppose. It's not like something's just happened unexpectedly. There's been a pattern of this ocean behaviour for forever and it's been well recorded by scientists and it is uh, another reason why I live on the hill here close to the coast but quite well ele- elevated because the area of this property which is little rainforest has got uh, deposits of very ancient sand dunes. So one yes, well, just, just If I can was... stop you there just for a sec, because I
0: used that term literal rainforest and I, I know that sounded very clever of me, but in fact I got it from you when we chatted yesterday. So yeah. just explain uh what literal rainforest is well means. it's
1: it's it's types of it's a type of forest that is to be found behind coastal dunes, on the coast itself. Uh, there's just a few patches of significant Coastal rainforest or littoral, uh, rainforest, uh, littoral rather than littoral. Yes, rather than being educated. (laughs) Uh, And, uh, and, uh, there's very few patches of it, uh, remaining and the natural, the natural landform has lent itself to protection in this particular area. Right. And, uh, and it is, it is, uh, very important. As a type of ecosystem to maintain as much as we possibly can. And what lives here? What
0: are the sort of uh, if people were here, what would they see? Uh, there's obviously
1: some. Uh, what do they call them? Scrub
0: turkeys around. Oh, there's
1: plenty of scrub turkeys around. There's uh, there, there's koalas just further down the hill. They don't like the literal rainforest itself, but they're because they're more into the eucalypt country. They're in they? the eucalypt country, which is just walking distance away. You mm-hmm. know, a few hills back and uh, quite a significant ka- koala uh, area. Uh, and uh, there's all manner of snakes. Wall- um, wallabies? Wallabies, uh, yeah, there's uh, sort of um, uh, little uh, sort of forest-dwelling wallabies that are very prolific, mm-hmm. particularly around our veggie garden. <laughs> it's an ongoing <laughs> battle. Um, but there's a huge range, uh, uh, all sorts of small marsupials uh, and, um, uh, you know, plant types and insect types that haven't necessarily been properly uh, scientifically investigated because it's, it's, it's a it's a refuge area you know and and there is stuff that gathers on our windows at night that you know i take pictures of we've never seen before insects that are attracted by the light right and uh, and it's it's quite a uh, a rich resource for scientists. We've had scientists from Southern Cross University come onto the property and ask permission to dig some holes to just temporarily trap, you know, various mm. native animals and, uh, and, and, uh, which they've been welcomed. That's part of what it's here for. And it's, uh, it's quite a wealth of, uh, oh, micro bats, two little horseshoe bats and wow. bent wing bats and, Massive amounts living on the incredible insect life, so it's a, you know it's a it's in reasonable harmony, and uh, and uh, we try to keep it that way.
0: Well, you're someone who's really living what it is that you've advocated in in public life, in politics, and as a campaigner. You you really are. I mean, you see this as th- this landholding that you have here as. Um, I suppose, a private reserve, that is, um, you own it at the moment, but your intention is for it to be uh, maintained in perpetuity as reserve.
1: Yeah, the the property was shared and other shareholders, owners, uh, didn't agree with sort of, putting that power over the state and i I am very enthusiastic about it so I'm now in a position to do that and I will be doing that and I'll be looking at what neighbors might be doing of similar ilk and that we can really sort of lock up some areas um, not that they wouldn't be used but used sensitively getting away from car traffic and an and absolutely sort of rapacious attitude toward this as a a, a type of e- recreational area and use it as you will to really uh, sensitively using it and having people come with a sense of awe and uh, that is what sustained me to a great extent and I'm really happy to share it but share it in a way that people come with respect and I think that also applies to the incredible pressure that the public nature reserve areas in this shire are suffering from because Obviously Byron Bay is a household world. It's associated with par- parties, mm. doofs and conservation and, and, and obviously healing and all sorts of interesting uh, alternative modalities. But in that there is a, there is a contradiction. There's a sort of a clash uh, between, um, utilizing a resource and sort of using it up and damaging it to, um, protecting the resource and having people come along to walk the roads into the reserves and, uh, and enjoy, uh, the beauty of it, uh, without, without actually damaging it. And that's that sort of light footprint that we'd like to. Develop as an ethos. It's all there in uh, in, in lots of talk and government propaganda and, uh, and and everything as they continue to encourage people to come into areas that aren't actually geared up and equipped to deal with the onslaught of tourists, particularly now with uh, uh, with COVID coming up and uh, all the issues that evolve around that and uh, people's need for this type of recreational opportunity yeah. and this soul healing. Yeah. Process. Uh how do we do it? How do we fit them in where everybody's happy, particularly the animals on the road that just happen to be blinded by the lights at the wrong time?
0: Yeah, which is just terrible when you see that. And then and I noticed the number of the locals around here and and even on uh, Broken Brokenhead uh Reserve Road, for example, they're coming into this area, there are signs that are quite clearly been made by locals asking motorists to slow down, even below the fifty K limit because animals
1: are crossing koalas and other things. If everyone travelled at that pace, yeah. not only would they uh, would they uh, have a chance uh, have a chance. The animals would have a chance, but the drivers would have a chance of of viewing some fantastic, you know, fantastic animals. A spangled drongo, a mate of mine who's a surf he said, "Look, he couldn't believe it. There was a spangled." On, your
0: mate's called spangled. Drongo.
1: <laughs> no, sorry, that that really got <laughs> unclear. You'll have to edit that. Uh, but there was a spangled drongo on the road, which is a beautiful satin black. Uh, bird and, and, and extremely valued ecologically. And it just got bowled over by a speeding car. And he oh. was incredulous at thinking, well, why does that car just to go another 10, 15 kilometers an hour in a 50 zone? Mm. That bird is gone. It's mm. gone forever. Mm. There is not the snake that I can show you pictures of that stretched right out across the road here on the dirt road. It's not around anymore. I, you know, I used to see it regularly, and a snake like that was a, a big fella or mm. lady or whatever, and uh, and you'd and stop. Was that a python? A python, or a something? python yeah. yeah, and you'd stop. I haven't seen that for several years, and I know that I would if it was still alive. Yeah, that's really sad. Um, just before we leave the country, you mentioned
0: before that it has a, an indigenous, um, an interesting indigenous past. I wonder if you could just uh, explain. Who the traditional owners of this land were?
1: Yeah, well, it's the Iraqul custodians of the Bundjalung Nation. And, uh, they, uh, they lived on this land. And I've walked this land with a, a lady called Auntie Lorna, who, you know, she was just the most amazing woman. You know, she'd just walk along there on the tracks barefooted. And, uh, they lived and grew up in these, these coves. And Bray's, uh, beach is, a, is, is, one of the Aboriginal elders who used to, who used to fish down there and live down there and that they have a very powerful connection to the land. And also there's a, a series of articles written about 20 years ago by a journalist called Peter Elham called Rivers of Blood. And he describes the uh, massacres that occurred in this area and they actually chased uh, the local Aboriginal people up and trapped them in some of the beach areas and uh, waited for the tide to come up and, uh, and slaughtered them, you know. So mm. uh, it, it is a story of um, of prior, very strong connection with the land. Uh, it, it is a story of people who are still connected with them being alive today and the good part of the story is that a significant number of those people are employed in national parks uh, on country, And, uh, and they've, they won awards. The old ladies, the sisters went and traveled to South Africa to, to get an international award for, uh, for the whole development of the Indigenous land use agreement and, uh, the relationship between local Aboriginal people, their recognition and, uh, the fact that, uh, they had gotten, might I say, without sort of interfering with, with their rules, might I say where Um, they got recognition and certain areas were protected and acknowledged as their sacred sites. They gave the community one of the hottest properties in Byron Bay itself. They gave it to them to build a library. So it's a fantastic Mm. sort of giving back and generosity on the part of, of these local Indigenous people, which I think... Gets lost in time. It does. And, it does. Uh, that's to me something that. Uh, well, you know, I'm older generation now, so uh, I, I like to raise that issue as much as possible. Just how much uh, those people have given back and how generous they've been, considering the difficulties they faced. Giving
0: have a giving they have been considering that uh, bloody history. Let's yes. you know, let's let's yeah. be frank about it. As yeah. you were, it's. Uh, um, and that's really the story of, of Indigenous, uh, white relations in, in Australia, uh, over the, the whole journey is this, um, this amazing tolerance really or, or, or generosity that has been, um, extended, uh, over time, uh, given the way, uh, this relationship started and indeed the way dispossession has continued. So, uh, we certainly, I take this opportunity, I'm sure you share this view, to, to, to pay our respects to the traditional owners of this land, as we do at the beginning of this podcast always. Um, we'll take a break now, uh, and, and afterwards we'll talk about uh, your attempts to stop a warship by, <laughs> by hand, personally. Back in a moment. There's
1: never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts.
0: Welcome back now. As I was just saying before the break, uh, Ian Cohen did try and stop a warship with his bare hands. Let's go to that because, um, people in New South Wales, you know, you, they'll know your name, of course, be very familiar with you for, from your long parliamentary service and, and others in the environmental movement, of, of course, will know you. Um, and many will know also, or if they think back to the dark reaches of their memory, they'll, they'll remember a, an extraordinary photo or vision. Of a man. This is way back in 1986. A man on a surfboard trying to stop, or at least draw attention to, the uh, entry of the USS Oldendorf. I think it was, mm-hmm. um, a, a an American destroyer as it was coming into Sydney Harbour. And now, look, tell us about that because that is just a, a, an extraordinary piece of history uh, that uh, that that you can uh, talk about firsthand, which doesn't happen often
1: it was a sort of a series of um of developments i was very bright-eyed bushy-tailed back in those days and i helped out the nuclear disarmament party campaign for the 84 election and that was the one was, where peter garrett peter garrett was the, garrett uh, was the senate lead candidate. senate candidate hmm. almost got in and uh then uh was sort of very much involved in the whole anti uh, uranium industry so uh but i didn't have a great deal of resource you know i was running around on my wits, and uh, then we got announcements that there was going to be the biggest armada of undeclared, neither firm nor deny. Yeah, that was that the US policy that, that yeah, would confirm or a, deny yeah. nuclear
0: uh, weapons or nuclear power of their of their vessels.
1: That's yeah. right, coming into our harbors right around Australia for uh, the 175th naval anniversary. It was a big do, and uh, and so I very enthusiastically. Uh, Got together with groups like Greenpeace and the remnants of the Nuclear Disarmament Party, and we sort of formed the Sydney Peace Squadron and the Brisbane Peace and Environment Fleet. And I, um, when it, at the early stages, you know, it was all friendly camaraderie, but the, uh, the, the people in Greenpeace had fantastic equipment and laughed at me. Well, you're going to go out on there, and I thought to myself, "Well, gee, you know, all I've got the surfboard, <laughs> 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 and you sort of use what you've got." Uh, and uh, and they all thought it was hilarious. And the and the first ship coming through, which closed the ports of New Zealand, and we saw all the protests there, and you know, it was pretty inspirational. Yeah, and um,
0: was that the Longy government at the time? It was. Yeah, and, yes. and, and the government had. Banned the entry of nuclear-powered vessels. Yeah, yeah,
1: nuclear armed. This nuclear is, this, armed. Right? This is a neither confirmed nor denied, but it's nuclear armed. There's no question about nuclear power coming at that time. Right. Um, and uh, and so they were, you know, they were the mouse that roared, and it was fantastic for us in the mm-hmm. peace movement and uh, uh, you know those radical political circles. Anyway, so I had my surfboard and I was on a yacht. And I had no idea exactly what I'd do with my surfboard on a yacht, except the captain was tacking back and forth a- across the path of and you see this massive ship coming in, and this isn't the big day I'm just going back a little, tiny bit in history mm. and he yelled at me, "This is as close as I'm getting, and I thought, oh, okay, <laughs> so I jumped off my surfboard and paddled across the front of the uh of the ship and um and Julie got dragged in by the cops saying what an idiot I was and, and then watched as they put me into the slowest boat in the protest fleet as I missed all the action. And I could see all the Zodiacs and Greenpeace sort of being what I saw as being really effective, you know, half a kilometre down the harbour. Mm. And then after it all, they all sort of gave me a hard time because I got left behind, which I did. Mm. But that next day and in the evening news, it said protester risk death and was that me? Yes, it was me. Was I really? Yes, I guess maybe, but not necessarily. And uh, and uh, that grabbed the attention of the media. And so I sort of, you know, lay awake at night thinking, how can I develop this? And, wow! You know, imagine if I this could story say- gets better and better. Yeah, <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I and I thought, how can I do it? And I started practice runs because the ships were coming in with regularity and I started practice runs between Brisbane and, and, and Sydney uh, uh, demonstrating on a surfboard and hanging on the nose of the ships, but the media wasn't there, oh. so they didn't see it. So what I did was... So it was, wasn't even
0: the first time you'd done it. No,
1: no, it was probably about the, about the fifth time that I'd done it, but in Sydney it was the big day. Mm. The boats were everywhere, the media was everywhere, so it was the media that manufactured... The image, and well, I, think I was you, just, you, you manufactured. Well, the image. I They just, just took the photos. I was just the bait on the hook, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and and so and so this image. And I was, I I got onto the front of the Oldendorf, which um, it was, you know, like it it, it needed commitment. It's sort of like riding a big wave, you know, you needed commitment, and uh, and and I managed to get into position. Uh, uh, from a zodiac, and the, the ships were coming at me. And one of the things, when they're in formation, things that big can't move, yeah. so you can really sort it out yeah. in your mind. as a t- and, and,
0: and and presumably once that you get fairly close, then they can't even see you anymore.
1: No, they had ratings looking through the sort of the anchor chain holes yeah. at the top to see what in the hell this he was doing. Oh yeah, they were, <laughs> <laughs> they were all having a go, but I managed to do that, and. uh what happened was the Sydney Morning Herald and the TV news has got fantastic footage. They were on a flat-bottom boat directly in in front of me, all facing my way and going back. So it was just one of those those media opportunities that sort of fall your way. And by that time, I was fairly skilled, so I had this ride of my life up Sydney Harbour, and of course was duly arrested at the end of it all. Mm. Um, but and charged presumably? Oh yes, I, I got uh, uh, I was charged with obstruction. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a great lawyer and he went right through the whole thing and sort of how absurd it was. And and, and I got off the charges because a sort of a, a, an 80 kilo person on a, a five kilo surfboard or 10 kilo surfboard is not going to did, did, really did obstruct not, a did warship. did not really and,
0: impede its progress. No, either.
1: no. So, and, and that was, that was like, it was fun times. It was exhilarating. It was a case of getting the message across the media, using the media and, and, uh, and attracting them to the bait like vultures and they can't help themselves. And so it was a successful campaign in some ways. But after the ships were docked, they then had people coming down to visit the ships and the population swelled out of the city in such numbers that they virtually had rights down there at, uh, uh, at the, uh, at the docking cockatoo, uh, the docking area not far from the quay. And it made me think, well, it doesn't matter what we do, the media and the general population are really set in their ways of absolutely um, spellbound by these ships of war. And I realised just how difficult it would be to have a significant impact other than uh, on people who already felt the same way as you did. That's really an interesting realisation because
0: it kind of goes to where I was planning to go with the next question anyway, and that was to I suppose talk about what you learned from that and then, you know, like a decade or so later, a bit less than that, you turn up in the New South Wales Parliament. So you've gone from kind of outsider to insider in a way. You've you 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 as you say, you, you were surfing on your wits really, clinging onto the front of a board or front of a boat with, you know, one of your few possessions on your surfboard. And uh, 1995, you enter the New South Wales Upper House, so you're now inside the the kind of um, establishment in a way, albeit as its first the Parliament's first Green MP. Was that a natural development of that realization that there are limits to what you can achieve through protest, through persuasion of that me- of
1: that method? Look, I, I think you know I sway back and forward. Um, I can see where. Protests on the streets is invaluable, and I always um, uh, have great sympathy for that that function. And I can see just how powerful uh, the the parliaments are in terms of being able to potentially get in there to change things. But I started my political career um, because I was asked by the Greens. They couldn't get a candidate to run for the Senate and this was a year after I did the warship stuff so I had uh, quite a significant profile uh, as an activist and I uh, was asked by the Greens to run for the Senate and I thought... The Federal Senate. The Federal Senate, yeah, Yeah. uh, they had no one. (laughs) No one wanted to do it. No one in the more serious sort of uh, parts of the movement really wanted to touch this type of radical um organisations and radical behaviour and and such like. And so I thought, okay, here's an opportunity to actually raise the issues Mm. and that's what the first couple of election runs were all about, although 87, uh, Bob Hawke, uh, was running again and, uh, and they did a double dissolution. So I only needed 7% to get up. Yeah, and that's right. A smaller I, a, quota. When, smaller when, when quota. You're electing 12, and so I state. actually came very close and they elected the, a nuclear disarmament party person, uh, Rob Woods, uh, in, in front of me. But so, so it was close. It sort yeah. of wetted my appetite to it. Uh, Plus the fact that, you know, I was pretty well declared as as uh, as completely unemployable. I had no other choice <laughs> in life, you know, <laughs> to become a politician. <laughs> um, but uh, I sort of kept at that, raising the issues and raising them well. I, you know, recycling, um, um, you know, getting up in front of uh, uh, Howard's uh, launch at the State Theatre and just getting really close and being able to sneak in there, disguised as liberal, of course, mm. um, and and. Uh, and, you know, yell out the slogans, you know, was he going to damn the Franklin again? All those big issues. that They were the big been, issues back in the 80s. You'd been you know? involved
0: in, in the Franklin yep. below yep. Gordon, yep. is it? Gordon below Franklin? Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, issue as well. So these are some of the big environmental fights that we're talking about. Yeah, here, yeah. Aren't they? You know, Roxby Downs, you yes. know, the whole uh, uranium thing in yes. South Australia, the, the US uh, warships, nuclear power is an issue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, the one we're talking about, the, you know, the, the, the amazing success story really of, of Australian environmentalism there in Tasmania.
1: Yes. Well, it was, it was, uh, a time when we really had a certain moral ascendancy and we were sort of tracking a new path historically and, and the green movement going from, um, you know, we were just, Dirty, unwashed rat bags. That's what we were called to, uh, greenies, um, in the Franklin River campaign. And then out of that came the sort of maturation of the greens. And so I sort of followed that, that trend where a lot of people who were involved, Bob Brown's a classic example where he went right through from being the, um, very peaceful, conservative, but still archetypal, protest leader at the Franklin River campaign, and we all we all just absolutely admired his style and tenacity and, and calm in all those situations. That he was a a great, still is a great teacher. That he went then through the Tasmanian Parliament and uh, gay law reform, and really, you mm. know, copped it hard and 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 stood. St- Stood firmly against Mm. it, uh, to becoming a senator, uh, in the federal parliament. So that was inspirational. And I was there when we formed the Australian Greens as an organization and, uh, and kept. Pushing for what I believed in. I mean, I was offered positions with the Democrats at the time. They were much more mature. I said, "Look, I can't go under any label except the Greens. I believed in it. I'd mm. found a sort of a religion. I have to admit, you know, mm. something, something to believe in, a future to believe in." And uh, and as a result of that, I kept on with the Greens until I stumbled into Parliament in nineteen ninety
0: five. This issue of uh, the relationship between protest and 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 parliamentary service, or you know, being being prepared to speak the language of uh, the, of institutionalism, um, and and relate to people to you know, the attempt to persuade people to your point of view. It's a really fascinating one. I've I've, I've long been interested in this. I remember hearing a story about John Bannon, the uh, the South Australian Premier, when he'd been at university. He used to attend anti Vietnam marches. I think mm-hmm. it was wearing a suit. And people would ask him, "What are you doing?" You know, like he's out yeah. there, sort of at the front of the march. Yeah. And this 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 young, left leaning, but conservative looking, activist would answer that his job wasn't to win over the people that already won over. It was to win over the others, so that when they see the evening news and they see this protest, they see themselves in the crowd as well as people who aren't them. And in a way, Bob Brown did that as well. Absolutely. He was a GP. Yes he as you say he actually presented this kind of stately calm almost conservative uh, kind of disposition when when he when he spoke and yet he stood very firmly for these quite quite radical change ideas
1: Yeah a true radical opposing all the All the fashions and norms of the time, you Mm. know, why aren't you part of the great unwashed, et cetera, et cetera. And it was funny because down at the Franklin River, I accompanied Bob and a whole bunch of people on an early stage of the campaign where he had decided he was going to get arrested. And he sort of said, for heaven's sake, don't everyone get arrested today. We need you all for the weeks to come. Yeah. And we walked through the forest and it was great. And we got to a place called Warner's Landing, which was a particularly beautiful uh, little... Um, cool temperate stream and rainforest palms everywhere. And Bob stopped and out of his day pack, whatever it was, he pulled a tie and he put on a tie. I said, you've got to be joking. Story. And he said, no, no, he said, we've got to all got to do it the way we feel comfortable. I go, okay, fair enough. Yeah. You know, good, good point. So he was arrested on the Franklin River at the very beginning of the campaign wearing a sort of like a tweed jacket and a tie.
0: And I think that probably was a very powerful message across middle Australia. Uh, It it, It wasn't
1: all just people with dreadlocks and
0: and hadn't had a shower for a few weeks. No.
1: It resonated. It absolutely resonated. And the other, on the other hand, they, I was long haired when I had hair and bearded at the Franklin. I was living in the forest and I looked like it. I was a quintessential greenie and a lot of the cartoons sort of. Depicted me, you know, yeah, it looked like yeah. it. And, uh, and the Wilderness Society said, Ian, look, nothing personal, just stay out of the media. You know, <laughs> we, we, we don't want that image. And I thought, well, fair enough. You know, yeah, I, yeah. I've actually from previous campaigns had been locked out of those roles and gone and become very comfortable being on the ground. And that's mm. where I felt I wanted to be, you know, digging, digging holes and fixing up paths and making people comfortable when they come into a really challenging environment of actually living in a tent down in the wilderness, leeches and the whole bit sort of yeah. all over them and, and, and having to deal with that because it rained that summer virtually every day they'd never had such a wet season down there but we were there for months on end and we reveled in it so yes it's just i guess it's an appreciation a of 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 protest and supportive politics and supportive legals when they're all synced in and working together it's an incredibly powerful uh, set of campaign tools and one without the other uh just crashes against the Yeah, cuz they have their the limitations. Of, they do. Yeah. They do, you know. I went uh with uh, I went twice to the Dane Tree for uh the campaigns where the second one the the mainstream conservation groups just were unable d- didn't have the 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 go in them to support us and left us high and dry with Joe Bielke Peterson's police force. In the rainforest, the daintree, and that included the right squad with dogs and people getting mauled and pretty heavy stuff. And that's the other end. Of the branch that you're sort of sitting on, and they're cutting it <laughs> down <laughs> yeah. below you, you yeah. know. And so, so it is a case of working a balance between protest. And you know, after I got elected, I still protested. I remember burning a a post. I almost got the sprinklers going in the parliamentary press room, burning a a, a big poster of uh, of the southeast forests when the you know, the car government was ignoring some of the pleas of uh, uh, the conservation movement to actually. Do something constructive, um, but then in hindsight, I also see that the pressures against um, conservation have been monumental. Especially, you know, with with a labor government, they have you know on one shoulder is the unions. Many of them aren't conservationists at all. Some are, but they're there protecting jobs and their mm. livelihood, and that's still reflected in the COVID crisis now. So these are all massive pressures upon governments that you realise just how tiny you are. But we were, for the four, first four years, uh, in a very uh, constructive relationship with the car government and saved a lot of forests. And we were sharing with a, a group of disparate independents, we were sharing the balance of power in the upper house. So they we had quite a significant amount of power. And you found yourself uh, being
0: courted or duchessed or, or or kept in contact however you like to call it by some guys that have i guess become pretty notorious in australian politics eddie ob yeah, and mcdonald yeah they had in the upper j- house
1: they had a job in the upper house to keep me happy and to sort of win me over f- for the government's other aspects of the agenda by by conveying to the government because they didn't have portfolios and the Rumor has it they get portfolios if they could control us greenies at the time, um, but they uh, they were there and we had a sort of uh, a jovial, sometimes difficult <laughs> working relationship. Uh, but often- let's just say you fared better out of the history than they have. Well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> and there was another guy called Brian Langton who was a real a great guy, um, real cheeky. He's sort of the size of a, do- a jockey and he's, uh, he was very, very smart. And he came up to my office one day and said, oh, I, just, I just had a great meeting, cabinet meeting. I banged the table and that effing Cohen says this and, and really ripped into the whole cabinet and got his way on some significant things in his portfolio. I knew nothing about it. But he was able to use me and, and, and and build me up bigger than what I was in real, in reality to, to actually get that leverage and, and, and win away. So everyone was playing sort of clever political games then. And, uh, and we did get some significant advances in forest conservation.
0: So you've had as someone on, on the green side and the green movement in the conservation movement, you've had, uh, you know, exposure to all of those complexities. You would have insights therefore into that perhaps some of the um, people on the front line of of the protest movement are sometimes blind to. You'd have insights into all the different, as you were just saying, all the different interests that uh, particularly mainstream political parties, parties of government uh, that aspire to be in government, are trying to balance all the time. You can see where I'm going with this. I'm coming to coal um, Joel Fitzgibbon, Labor frontbencher, thinks that the Labor Party might eventually have to split. He's not saying it'll happen in his lifetime, but he's talking about the tension that exists between, I guess, the aspirations of the inner cities, which uh, Labor needs to form government, but also the regions. Joel Fitzgibbon represents a lot of coal industry workers. Do you have, uh, I guess I've got a couple of questions about this, do you have some sympathy for a party that's trying to straddle those quite different um Poles of interest, and do you think that um, that the Labor Party can continue to do it, or will it or will it eventually just become too hard?
1: It, it's the relationship with coal. There is this dinosaur politics,
0: but there are that's true. That, but there that, are people that, employed in that industry. Yes, I agree. I agree. I agree. It's our voters.
1: responsibility as a society to transition to them. transition them, and we've seen with COVID the capacity. Of even conservative governments to help all sorts of people and communities to survive in an almost socialist manner, mm, and yeah, so they can Cainteans do it when, they, yeah, mm. when 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 they recognise it and it's for the good in the medium and long term that they can actually uh, stop and go, hey, we've got a serious emergency and emerge out of their uh, narrow-minded politics and the coal industry is all about narrow-minded politics and the opportunities that we have uh, as a uh as a sort of a, an advanced industrialised nation with with all sorts of capacities, like the fact that Howard um, refused to to help fund that Chinese entrepreneur that went off to China with uh, his newly developed um, solar panels, and he very in a very short period of time became one of the richest men in China. That, that says it all in my book. That could be jobs by the hundreds of thousands and wealth in expo, export dollars sitting in somewhere like the desert of South Australia so you know um, it's it is our responsibility to to find those ways ways forward but I feel uh, and labor and the coalition you know um, um, the prime Minister with his piece of coal in his hand in, in Parliament this is all just really cheap politics it's it's missing the point. They're scaring the hell out of people like they like to do with, with everything and, uh, and, and they're impeding movement forward that could be extremely productive for everybody. And, and giving we... false comfort to people
0: in, in an industry that does not have a long-term future.
1: No, well, it's, you know, who knows when they get to a point where, um, where, where uh, the alternative power industry uh, solutions actually, and they are, overtaking coal uh, as a, as a, a viable economic option, uh, that they can, they, that, that, they'll dump, they'll dump those industries and they're dumping them already. Mm. I mean, you know, coal prices. see the banks are. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, so, and then they come, and they flip up the nuclear industry because it's just, it's pressure from lobby groups and people who have got a vast amount of power, uh, and putting those industrialists into, you know, uh, committees and such like that are supposed to be looking after our future. It's, it's just—it's uh, testimony to the power of the—I'll um, call it gutter media. I suppose I shouldn't be using such terms that can can really twist people's reality around to sort of uh, not get a balanced view and not be able to understand the nuances of of, of these arguments. So, so I don't accept. Joel Fitzgibbon, I put him in the same basket as, uh um, what's his name Um now, the head of One Nation in New South Wales, um ex-Labour leader. Oh, Mark Latham. Mark Latham. I aren't was going to say, lucky? I'm not familiar uh, with yeah. you, who's the leader in New yeah. South
0: Wales, but unfortunately I am.
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, aren't we lucky that we didn't get him in as uh, some sort of Labour Prime Minister? <laughs> so... um Amazing turn of history that. Let yeah. me just
0: finish. We're, we've been we're running uh, a little, little bit out of time here, but uh, let me just finish with a question about the Greens. What what do you think the future of the Greens are? Some people think that it could end up being like the Nats are to the Liberals. That is a sort of a permanent coalition partner of Labor. That obviously has some tension with the previous question asked and the subject matter there, but yeah. I mean, the Greens are, as a third force, have been much more stable than other forces, probably because they've been built around a very powerful idea rather than a person. I mean, we see those sort of eponymous parties like the Clive Palmer party or, or, um, uh, you know, Pauline Hanson's One Nation. Yeah. These, these things tend to be very short lived. Um, the Democrats looked like they were that third force for a while, but then went by the wayside rather dramatically. The yeah, Greens they, have they've stayed on but do they does does the party have a long-term future?
1: I think so. I think there there is a real need there but at the same time we need to protect ourselves because there there are uh, opportunities in the Greens now where people can come along uh, realizing that they can get a very uh, high-profile high-powered job. Uh, and so you get those professionals, careerists, careerists and uh, and so that that can be a problem and there's also quite sort of different perspectives within the greens. It's the broad church you've got your you know people who are very uh, would have would have answered the Joel Fitzgibbon question very differently to what i i i had and uh, and they're much more sort of socially oriented and industrially uh, driven Uh, In terms of, uh, um, you know, workers' rights and such like. So, so there is a a broad spectrum and and a fair bit of, uh, um, conflict within the Greens itself. I think. Well, you've seen a fair bit of that in the New South Wales uh, branch. Yeah. Well, I, I guess, you know, I feel I've been a green, green. Um, I think that the ecology and environment are the top of the pyramid and I've had some pretty strong arguments with people who see social issues which I, you know, like to feel I've abided by for many years and been involved in uh those social issues before I became an environmentalist. Um but it's uh, it, it does Lend itself to take over of people who are sort of very skilled at meeting process and uh, and and pushing their way through with a certain set of ideals, that uh, that, but there's still the opportunity within the Greens, sort of the grassroots democracy a- aspects, for people to actually come back and say, no, we don't want to go down that road. We actually want you to focus more back on the environmental issues, but we include the, the job components and, and, and supporting industries that are supporting the environment. So it's not a, an easy road. Um, it's going to be fraught with, with continuing, uh, 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 issues, but, uh, I think by and large, you know, we've got a, a huge sort of resource of people who are very, uh, very, um, Idealistic and and dedicated, and there's an amazing crossover into the small g green movement of people who are out there. Uh, I want to see a film. There's some young guy that sort of climbed trees on Kangaroo Island and saved about two hundred k- koalas after mm. the recent fires. Yes, I'm aware of them. that type of thing. You know, where you just go, well, my hat off to him, mm. and and all those people who are well, like I was, perhaps. Uh, um, perhaps misguided, but still out there, right out there on a limb, and they've got no investment in the situation except their ideals. Yeah, it's a a brilliant note to end
0: on. Ian Cohen, thanks for joining us on Democracy Sausage Extra. It's uh, been a great privilege talking to you, especially sitting in this country here. I can say we we just did our 100th podcast uh, only a few days ago, uh, but in all of those podcasts we've never had anyone... On who's uh, surfed the bow wave of a USS destroyer so uh, USS uh, Oldendorf it was uh, American destroyer so uh, that's something of a privilege to talk to you a piece of uh, political protest history and uh, it's been great talking to you today and politically I've flogged the image to death ever since (laughs) (laughs) Good on you. Thank you for joining uh, Democracy Sausage for listening to us today. We'll be back on Monday with another episode Uh, and until then um, uh, bye for now